This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. I'm Kathy Worthington. Today on Late Boomers, we have as our guest, Nancy Napier, who is Professor Emerita at Boise State University. She's a speaker and author and has published widely on organizational creativity, innovation, and emerging economies. And I'm Mary Elkins. Nancy has hosted NPR's Idaho Business Matters, has written for Forbes Vietnam, and has received from Vietnam two of Vietnam's top honors for foreigners, the Medal of Honor for contributing to education there, and the Medal of Friendship for building relationships between the U.S. and Vietnam. She's also now delving into the world of writing fiction. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you. What do you think were your early influences that led to becoming a professor? And also, please explain as that what you feel is your mission. Good question. I loved school as a child. Uh, My dad was an army officer for 20 years, and he taught at West Point during part of that time and loved it. And so after 20 years, he retired got a PhD and taught for 25, 30 years. And I watched that process and I thought, how great is it to be paid to learn all the time? So that's really what got me started. I worked for five years in a research firm, Battelle in Columbus, Ohio. And while I was there, I got a PhD at Ohio State and then became a professor. And I have loved it. I've been at, I was at University of Washington for several years and then moved to Boise State kind of by accident for a year. And we decided Boise is a wonderful place to live and have two careers and raise kids. And what I discovered here is that I am an academic entrepreneur. I really like to start things, programs, different kinds of research every seven years or so. And as we'll talk more later, uh, a project in Vietnam, Hanoi, which was to help start up an international standard business school. So I love starting things and I can do that at this university as a professor. And so that's what you feel is your mission? My mission, yes, uh, is to help start new ideas, new programs. Once they get going, once a research area is strong and growing, then I get bored with it. So I oh. want to go on and do something new and different, which is why I've, I've had so many different research topics over the years. So a mission to start things, help get them going and bring students and other people along the way. That's, That's excellent. That is great. And I love that, that, that moniker, ap- academic entrepreneur. Uh, and on that note, you like to teach your students beyond the, the classroom walls 
about how creative leaders use ideas beyond their own fields to do things differently from their peers. Can you talk about that and about your book, Wise Beyond Your Field? And give us some secrets and examples of leaders who soar beyond the pack. Sure. Uh, Again, I was, uh, that came about a little bit by serendipity. I had finished this nine year long project in Vietnam. I was completely spent. I didn't want to commute 36 hours to do research anymore. And I was looking for topics to research. And it turns out this was in the early 2000s. There was a lot about creativity by individuals, artists, scientists, but not really much about organizations. And one summer I thought, well, shoot, I can, why don't I find out how organizations that are really different treat creativity? So I went to a software firm and a Shakespearean theater and studied what they do as far as organizations to generate ideas. I then stumbled onto um, our football program at the university, which has gained a lot of notoriety in the last 15 years, has a blue football field. And I, I studied those three and then started adding other really different organizations in. And part of what was intriguing to me was that their approaches were not as different as I thought they would be. And as I was doing this, going from software to football to healthcare to um, software, theater, the football coach said, could we all get together? Instead of you being the switchboard, could we all get together? And so we did. And we had uh, what we called the gang, um, first gang annual meeting with those four organizations. And then it's expanded to seven or eight in the original gang. Then we had spinoff gangs over the years. We had the sidewinders and the hard rock miners because we live in Idaho. So this notion of having really diverse organizational leaders come together at first, the coach said, what can I learn from an actor? What can I learn from a jail sheriff? What can I learn from a software CEO? But they learned their topics of leadership, culture, finding the right people, developing employees. Those are very common across any organization. So that's how that got started. Then I've been lucky enough to teach in an executive master's of business program with senior level managers from very different fields. And so we, we build on that. We say, all right, someone's in healthcare. Here's a person from a nonprofit, uh, educational nonprofit. Here's a person from a very large organization like Micron, and you can all learn together. So this concept of learning across disciplines, I push like crazy because it's, it's not a brilliant idea, but it's just not something that happens naturally in the business world, I find. Yeah, that's mm. true. Is that what your book's about? It is. So it's about, and it's the title is Wise Beyond Your Field, and it's written by the gang. So oh. all of these eight different people uh, contributed ideas of what they have done in their own organizations. And then many of those have transferred to some of these other ones. So for example, the coach, the I. I'm not a sports person. I don't really understand much about football, which is why I make a good ambassador from the academic side to go there. And they use something called position coaches. So the students um, are either quarterbacks or they run or they stand at the front line and block people. And these position coaches get really detailed in what they teach these kids. Well, the software company said, 
we should do the same thing. So they decided to use what they call position leaders. So people who really focus on different parts of the company and they get very detailed on what should be done. Then they rotate that position, that leader position across the people in the unit. So they've these, these ideas have cross have moved across the different organizations and that I love to see. That's amazing. So that, that would be some of the secrets and, and the sharing secrets, it seems like. They're open to development of the other side, so to speak. And I think, I think that is one of the keys right there. They are open. They have always, they are relentless learners. And they're aggressive about trying to do things differently. They are curious like nobody I've seen. So that willingness to say, just because it doesn't happen, didn't happen in software, there's no reason I can't try it in the jail. And so that openness has been brilliant. One of the, the software company CEO said at one point, if, if he were in the Silicon Valley, he would talk to other CEOs from similar business analytics companies. Because there aren't any in Boise, he has to talk to other leaders outside of his field. Hmm. So they, because we're more isolated from the business standpoint, Uh culturally and so forth, we don't have 14 ballet or dance companies. We don't have a lot of different theater companies. So they're forced, if they want to learn, to talk to people in other fields. And Uh now it's just become sort of natural to think that way. So you've worked with creative leaders in in all these different organizations, and how do you teach them to do things differently to get better and beat their competition? What I mean, and that's another great phrase. I have to. There's a tiny story about that. Our football coach's name was um, Chris Peterson. He he was here for a long time and then went to the University of Washington. He's now retired. When I first met met him, it was because his boss had said, "You need to talk to this professor." And he said, we are not creative. Football is all about structure. We do it the same way we did it in 1960. I said, okay, but you told me I could spend 45 minutes talking to you. At the end, I came away thinking, you train differently than other programs. You recruit differently than other programs. You try to think of different plays. You're not, what are you telling me? Well, time goes by and he said, okay, Nancy, we do things differently, but I don't like the word creative. It sounds too frou-frou. How about innovative? I said, that's fine. Use whatever you want. (laughs) And then time goes by and he said, you know what it really is? It's just doing things differently to get better. And I thought that's the definition. So that's what we have used. But after a bowl game that he won, I don't remember what it was, but he, in the newspaper, he comments about, well, we're just creative. That's who we are. And I said, no, I'm on on tape. But anyway, that notion doing things differently to get better became for these people a simple way of thinking. So instead of saying, well, we've gotten really good, let's just keep doing what we are doing. They were constantly saying, let's keep trying to do new things and never get complacent. Um, One of the stories in the book uh, from the jail was that a big time inmate escaped. The sheriff said we had gotten complacent, we were good, but that happened and it shook everything up. So that really forced them to say, okay, what do we do differently every day? And how do we go about that to get better? So 
Boy, I think mm. every organization out there can use those ideas. I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You mentioned curiosity. So how does unfolding our curiosity help us find new ways to look at the world and give organization leaders ideas from unexpected sources? You know, we could have a day-long discussion about curiosity, I think. And I go back and forth on whether it's something that if you that it's innate and you have it, or can you teach people to be curious? And I I guess I I waffle sometimes, but what I was lucky, not lucky. I I started approaching these leaders and I said, to be part of a gang, you need to be um, creative and prove it. And also you have to be a high performing organization, however your industry measures it. So in software, it was numbers of awards. In football, it's rankings. Uh, In the theater company, they had had a Yale Drama School did a case study on the organization because it was so interesting business-wise. And in, in each of those cases, I would talk to these leaders, potential leaders for a gang, and, and say, so how do you instill curiosity? How do you do it? And a big part of it was they asked questions of people in their organizations. They looked for ideas, and no idea was a bad one. We say that, but they really modeled it. But in one case, um, I was working with one of the organizations and one of the employees said, you know, I was in a meeting with the CEO the other day and I put an idea on the table and he leaned back and kind of closed his eyes. And she said, I will never put an idea out there again. And I knew the guy well enough to know that's how he thinks. He leans back and pulls away from the table. Well, I told him that later and I said, your body language said to her, her ideas was not valuable and that you weren't curious and yet you say you are. So he really changed. Um, but it, it's things like that, that they did it naturally or as an outsider with no agenda, I could once in a while say to them, you know, this is what I'm hearing from some of your employees. Be sure that what you say is really what you do, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, because people don't even realize what they're doing with their bodies that's true. in a meeting like that. And that's what people are reading because they're so nervous. They're just picking up on every cue. Yeah. Well, and curiosity a- can come from passion or love or love for your company and love for your colleagues. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it really is some it there's. I've read a little bit about curiosity and you need to know a little tiny bit about some topic before you can really be curious. Um, And once you have that little spark, then you can really take it and build on it. And what I have found interesting over the years are people that I I care nothing about numismatics, (laughs) coin collecting. And I ran a a professor friend of mine uh, earlier years his, that's not his field, but he was really interested in that. And one night at dinner, he pulls all these things out. Well, he had a way of, of relating that to other people. So yeah, coins have been around in history. We've all used them. Have you ever really looked at what's on them? What's it telling you about the culture and so forth? That sparked a little bit of create, of curiosity. And I think that's, that's nice. certainly in the teaching world it is. And I think in business as well. Right. So Tell us about Vietnam and your two books on it. And what are the challenges facing their new generation of leaders? 
so many people, my generation, and I, your late boomer uh, generation, yeah. we probably think of Vietnam as a war. And as the Vietnamese will say, if you ask them about the war in Vietnam, they'll say, which war are you talking about? Oh, yeah. They have fought war mm. for thousands of years, the Chinese, the French, the Americans, the Cambodians. So I, my mission when it comes to Vietnam really is to help people understand Vietnam, not as a war, but as a country and, and remarkable people. I, um, my own background, my dad was in Vietnam in the early 1960s before anybody knew where it was. Then I married a man who had been a uh, medic in Vietnam. He was a conscientious objector, had come over from Germany, said, I just don't want to carry a weapon. The Americans demilitarized the German youth and I'm the product. And so I'll go, but I don't want to carry a weapon. So he was a medic. The two of them got along very well. And then I had an opportunity again by chance and just jumping at it to go for three weeks in the spring of 94 to, to do some training with people, Vietnamese who were getting a, an international MBA, bachelor's of business. So they could start doing business with the Western world. For so long, Vietnam had been part of the Soviet Union uh, circle, and that was their major trading partner and so forth. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, they needed to learn how to deal with the rest of the world. So the government of Sweden and the Vietnamese government said, we will train some university instructors so they in turn can train Vietnamese managers in how to do business abroad. So I was part of that. I hit it off brilliantly with the project director. I was helping her do find people to come and teach. And by chance, uh, all kinds of other ways, my university ended up taking on the contract to complete the Masters of Business program, the second year of it for these first 30 people. The uh, government of Sweden and Vietnam said, we actually need more help. So in the end, Boise State delivered its MBA three times to 84 people, Vietnamese, both instructors, university professors, and business people. And so that was that was the nine year project in Vietnam. They say you come with one color hair and leave with two colors of hair. Mine used to be very brown and then it was white and brown and now it's completely white. So <laughs> I, I have been there a long time. But that that was the start. And uh, and then I did research with people. And now we take our executive masters of business participants to Vietnam every year for a one week residency where they do projects for Idaho companies. But I've known these, not 84 closely, but probably 30, 35 that I'm still in touch with. And these people, when they started the program in our MBA in the early 90s, had two changes of clothing. Most of them were rubber sandals and bicycles, no, very few motorbikes. And I remember asking them at one point, as the market changes and you go to a market economy, what is it you want? And the men said, I'd like leather shoes. I'd like a motorbike. And the women said, I'd like a second child because uh -huh. that was during the one child policy timeframe. Hmm. So of course, fast forward, those people now, business people, they're in government and uh, in universities, they're running the country. So we have been very uh. fortunate to stay in touch with them. And that's why we can take the executive masters of business participants over now. A few years ago, again, I, I listened to opportunities. A professor friend of mine who's an expert, history professor, expert on Vietnam said, have you ever written about 
uh, talked about the group of people that you worked with. And in the first book I wrote on Vietnam, we talked about a group called the Bridge Generation. And they were those folks I knew whose parents and grandparents had lived the same way for a thousand years, agrarian, and their children are global citizens. And these, these people really, to me, were the bridge between the old and the new. They're the bridge across generations as well. And they are the bridge between Vietnam as it was and the, the rest of the Western business world. So I feel super fortunate to be able to know them. And that that's, was the spark for, this, for the second book on, on that group. Are there struggles that worry you about Vietnam's place in the current global economy? Yeah, I a couple of things. One is as, as development happens, we all know this, in a place like that, you go from bicycles to Bentleys, we say. So there are lots of Bentleys, BMWs and Mercedes. You move from bicycles to cars, pollution comes hard and fast, and it really has for the country. So that worries me from a, just from an environmental standpoint, and they're aware of it um, and working on it, but still it's, it's happening so quickly, it's hard to keep under, uh, in control. The other thing that I think worries um, a number of Vietnamese is, and this feeds into a documentary that came out of this book, is going from a culture of we to me. So they have been for years and they still are a community and family is very important, but with more money, more opportunities, more of their children studying abroad and not always returning, there's more and more of a focus on me and what I can gain as opposed to what can I do for the good of the country. And I think that that worries some people um, in this documentary, and I'm happy to send you the link. It's the discussion is uh, three people two of them from this bridge generation and one younger woman. And they epitomize that sense of it was very hard during wartime, very hard after the war when we didn't have enough to eat. And now we want to do everything we can to build the country versus a young person who's only known that she had enough to eat and now says, I want to study my choice, not what my parents tell me. I want to marry who I want to marry. So there's some good things that come out of it, at least from my perspective, that you choose your partner, but there's a lot of, I'm going to go on my own and not necessarily give back to my community as much. Mm -hmm. And you may have covered most of my next question, but I wanted to you to tell us a little bit about the people in the book, which is called The Bridge Generation of Vietnam, spanning wartime to boom time, like maybe the periods they've lived through and who these people are and where they're headed. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, wartime, I'm thinking of during the, the, the American War. Uh, so mm -hmm. from the, in the 60s up to 1975. So people who were born during that time or even a little bit before, but they lived through it. And then the middle period is called the subsidy period or the rationing period. And that was after 1975 till about 1990. And it was Vietnam was still fighting China and Cambodia. So there was still rationing of food, of clothing, housing. People couldn't travel, move very much. Lots of poverty. Um, I forget the statistic now, but major problems with starvation. And then the boom time is in the early 90s, actually late 80s, Vietnam's government decided to switch from a completely planned economy to opening it up to more market forces. Mm. When I first got there, they called it moving toward a market-oriented economy 
under socialist guidance. That was a <laughs> mouthful. We were not allowed to use the word capitalism. That was political. Um, but now they have moved to, to open up the economy. So you live through wartime, and these folks remember bombing. That's kind of the main thing that they talk about. They all in their families lost someone who died or several MIAs in the fam their families. Um, and it was a, an honor to fight. One of the women was so desperate. She said, my parents were too old. My brother was too young. My sister, one sister was ill. I was 16. I desperately wanted to fight. So I wrote a letter to the government, the army with the blood from my finger to show how committed I was. Oh. So there was really this push desire to support the country. And then, so, so there were several in that kind of time frame. There's one story of a man whose father was fighting in Laos and never was found, died, and he never did find the place or the true story of what happened. And so, you know, these, these lack of closure kinds of stories for some of them. Um, and then during this period of subsidy times, rationing, uh, same thing. They all live through it. And their stories of we had two bowls of rice a day, maybe with some vegetables. The only time we ate was their New Year's Tet. Hmm. And we had a lot of food then, but we saved up for it. So so very hard, very tough. Um, the president of the university where I work a lot there told me about how 10 young men in a university dorm room shared two beds and then mats on the floor. And they shared three toothbrushes and three washcloths. So it was a time, really tough time for people. And yet they were desperate to get, a, a, get an education. Um, some of them started learning English. And instead of Russian, they all had to learn Russian in school, but English. And then they could become tour guides and start actually making some money. And then they, the third period, this boom time is, is 19, say, 1995 since um, they have just done remarkable things. Again, they've gotten, the university people have gotten PhDs. They're teaching at good schools in, in Vietnam and outside of Vietnam. One of my favorite uh, entrepreneur stories is about a man who studied here for six months and went and he noticed ID cards for students. He went back to Vietnam. He said, ID cards, you can go to the library, you can get food, you can go to uh, sporting events. So he went back and started a company that made ID cards and then eventually uh, it was one of 25 factories in the world to make Visa cards and MasterCards. Mm. He's gotten into SIM cards, security stuff. Now I have no idea what he's doing, but it's he's one of the top entrepreneurs in the country. Just got a huge contract with the government to do something related to passports and COVID. And I don't know, but he is, he is like the poster child for entrepreneurship. And his philosophy was always give now, take later. Mm -hmm. so that's back to this. I'm doing it for the good of the country. He's making a lot of money, uh, no doubt about that, but he takes care of his employees in ways that are unusual, even compared to what we see here in really good companies. So those are the types of people, the co-author and this, the bridge generation book is a woman who was, was the third employee of Hewlett Packard in Vietnam. And then she started her own with some other people started one of Vietnam's top training consulting firms. She retired from that. She's 55 maybe, and started a nonprofit 
nonprofit that has gotten all kinds of outside funding, foreign funding. So she, they just continue to, to do remarkable things. And so many of them do talk about wanting to build the country and they've, they've done that. That's such a quick turnaround though. How did the Vietnamese manage to go so quickly from such hardship to living these modern times well? Yeah, you know, that's that's a good question that I probably people would have different answers to. I think a lot of it is the desperation, frankly, that they came out of fighting. They were in, the French were there since the 1800s and then World War II, the Japanese were there, then the French were back, then the Americans. They were so desperate to get all these foreigners out of the country and they were, their resilience is unbelievable. And so they, they worked so hard for that. And then they could begin to see how things were going to open up once the government made some of its changes. And so their focus was hugely on education. So many of them uh, got education themselves. Families split up for years at a time for one of the parents to go and do a PhD somewhere and then return to Vietnam. Same thing with children. Um, so that the, the focus on education, of course, then really helps build the economy. And so I think partly because it was it's more open politically, it's communist country. It's very I never, ever talk politics there. There's certain things I would never talk to people at all about. Um, so that part is very clear. But then the economy has opened up enough. And as they started to see what was going on in the rest of the world, um, they just took advantage of it. Again, my co-author talked about going with her family to Cuba a few years ago. And she said, Cuba is what Vietnam was 25 years ago. And I never want to go back. You know, mm. it's I haven't been, but I hear, oh, it's beautiful and wonderful and music and, and old cars. But I guess the life is still pretty hard for people. Uh-huh. So I think they they just they move forward. They're a country that that uh, they have a phrase that I've always loved. If I can remember it, the four F's. So if somebody says, well, how can you do this, especially with Americans? We were so hard on you in the war. They say, well, we never forget. We try to forgive. We make friends with our enemies and we look to the future. And so they, this generation, the bridge generation, they will repeat that. And I think it's that we look to the future. We respect and honor the past um, and they, their history is very strong for them, but it's this looking to the future and how can our world be better for our children? And what will that mean? How will we do that? That's just. I know it's so amazing that they can forgive the Americans and you've probably answered most of this, but what makes the people and the country so captivating? Oh, and I don't know that I've ever figured that quite out. <laughs> um, I, oh. I think it is their, their resilience they have a sense of humor like I wouldn't have believed. And so they say, you have to have a sense of humor going through what we've gone through. <laughs> so there's this sense of, we know it'll get better. We're going through it together. And so it's the resilience. There's a real warmth um, toward other people that I find, uh, have I seen it other countries? I'm sure it is, but this place just feels like, as I said, my second home, they, they so take care of, Anybody who is there to work with them, um, be a tourist even. When I was working there, I had my two sons with me when they were in fourth and fifth grades. And I had to work. They were in school five days a week. I was working Saturdays until about one or two. So I hired um, the nephew of one of the 
faculty members. And so Kian would take my children around on Saturday and they've told me some stories since they were, after we left of where they went and what sort of things they did, but I never ever feared for their safety that anything would happen to them because they just, they're so caring. And uh, yeah, but I, I think the resilience piece is huge. And I think that just, they say we can get through it. And, and now we wanna have more friends and they realize having friends around the world is good for them, good for the country. Um, they're just very wise, I think, in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so true. So, Nancy, what are your plans for the future as a professor and author? And do you have other books in the works? And are they nonfiction or fiction? And <laughs> also, I'd like to know your experience about dipping into writing fiction. I uh, I have retired from my university in an official capacity, meaning I don't huh. I don't have to go to any meetings. Oh. I don't teach <laughs> anything except in this executive MBA, and I love it because these are all very motivated grown-ups who keep me on my toes. And so I'm having fun with that. I do executive coaching with them, and then we I oversee the Vietnam residency that we go to. So I'll keep doing that as long as I feel like I can do some good for them in the program. Um, I decide that the pandemic has been hard, but I decided, I think during the beginning of it to look into writing fiction. And then I also last summer decided it's time to start learning how to play tennis. I have a a family of very good tennis players who used to say, mom, you need to learn every 15 years. I would take two days of lessons and say, that's it. I'll be your cheerleader instead. But both of these things, fiction and then tennis I have put myself in the position of being a beginner. And I think that's much more important um, than I realized. I mean, I've always done that as I start new research areas, topics, I start from the bottom and have to learn enough to be able to do some work in that area. But this is is really different for me. And so being a beginner forces me also to think about when I'm teaching topics, questions, that may be new to these folks, don't assume that they understand it all right away. Don't be afraid of repeating things in different ways. Don't be afraid of drawing out their own experiences to build on something. And so that has been remarkable. And then to be a student as opposed to teacher and watch how, how those other folks are trying to teach me. Um, my I started in the pandemic, and I have what I say are four four of the world's worst novels. Four? <laughs> My husband says that's a terrible way to say it, and I said, "But the point is, there's no pressure. If you if you, think <laughs> that you don't have anything to prove, I'm <sighs> learning, and I've got two of them that I think are going to be in, in pretty good shape here in a, a while." But well, you it, know, they always say first drafts are from any person, any author, even famous authors are terrible. Terrible. Or worse than that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and it, it, that's right. And I, I have no sense of, I have to hurry and get this to be a bestseller. It may never sell, but I am learning so much about writing and about storytelling and about all these things that I never took a class on in, in college. And maybe it would have been wasted on me. So now- it, I saw on your website where you mentioned about the writing group that you went to. Yeah, 
Yeah. Tell our listeners a little bit about that because that was that was fun. Oh, that was I think last year, last summer. So one of these worst novels. Um, <laughs> so it was it's an online writing workshop they called it. It's eight or nine people every week. I forget what we submitted, maybe two thousand words, and then you had to comment on everybody else's stuff. So it was, it was time intensive, and I got back reactions that were. You know, I'm an academic. I send out manuscripts for journals and the reviews you get back can be really hard. So I've learned I just stick them in a drawer for a few days and pull them out and then I can deal with it. Well, these things sort of were the same way in some some regards. You don't understand point of view. You got to do this and that. And you know, you're missing your verbs and this and you're doing. Oh, and I just came away every week thinking, oh, man, I'll never get this. Put it away for a couple of days, pull it back out. And I thought, you know. If it's consistent across three people, there's a point. They know what they're talking about, that um, I need to at least be aware of it and learn from that. So that was a that was a wake-up call to say, this writing fiction is not as easy as you might think. And everybody says it's hard, but I didn't really understand it. But anyway, that was good. I'm, I'm doing another one right now where I get feedback from uh, the instructor and not in detail feedback, but it's it's enough that I think, you know, I'm seeing my consistent problems. And so I can, I think I can figure them out. There are days when I say, forget it, but it's been, it's a good thing to do now and then to be a, a rank beginner and not, not be afraid of it, I guess. And we've had a lot of our writers that we've interviewed say, you can't just write it in a vacuum. If, if nobody's reading your stuff and bouncing it off another group, it's not going to be as good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it gives true. you that outside but, viewpoint. But you have, I'm sorry, you have an incredible life experience to pull from in your fiction if you use it. One of the bad novels is about Vietnam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I, but it's I, going I, to be a good novel. Exactly. I hope so. I hope so. This, this one I'm working on right now is about art crime and it starts in Vietnam. So it's about art and what's real and what's not real. Uh, and so I'm loving learning about art crime. Who knew it was such a big business? And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then building in so much of the uh, ideas from Vietnam, the Bridge Generation book stories, I can actually take some of those and, and use them in different ways in fiction. And so all of this drawing one from the other piece, I guess I, I hadn't fully understood the value of that until I got into this. So as you can tell, I'm pretty darn naive about it all still. But That's great. Where can people learn more about you and your books? Um, uh, you mentioned you've been on the website. I just have a new uh-huh. one that came up today, actually, but it's the same site. So it's nancyknapier.com, lowercase. That's the website and all the books, um, not all of them, but most of them are on there. And then more about me and past experiences and a little bit about this Vietnam project. So the the books are all available on Amazon and it would be great if anybody wanted to take a look at them and give me feedback. We'd love it. Oh, great. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much, Nancy. There's, I'm looking forward to reading them. Oh, I appreciate it. Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Nancy Napier, speaker, professor, and author of books on organizational creativity, innovation, emerging economies, and she has now fiction to add to that. You can find out more about her, as she said, on nancyknapier.com. Thank you so much, Nancy. This has been really interesting. 
I appreciate it so very much. It's great to talk to you all. Very, yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We loved it. We request that our listeners follow us on Instagram, on our late boomers, and our accounts at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins. You can drop us a line at our website, lateboomers.biz, B-I-Z. Thanks again so much, Nancy. Thank you, ladies. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Calling all speakers. E-Women Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.